Uncle Darren's anecdotes. While in the Sahara Desert, I heard an owl. Okay, let's get going with this podcast, huh? All right. I'm ready to go. <laughs> go. <clears throat> now? Yeah. Yay! <clears throat> Hello, and welcome to the world-famous Tetrabod Zoology Podcast special 40th episode. The big 4-0. Big 4-0. So yeah. now you do all that party stuff that you... Uh, oh, woohoo. Yeah. yeah. Let's rock out, man. <laughs> also, uh, let's, go, let's go buy a sports car and, uh, you know, whatever. Is that what you do when you're 40? I wouldn't yeah. know. Much younger. Much, much younger now. Now we're close to 40. <laughs> Can't afford a sports car. <laughs> um, I'm... <clears throat> so I'm a 50 terabyte self-evolving neural network double backflip off the high platform. And I am your father. <laughs> <laughs> and in this thrilling episode, uh, first of all, two-minute rule is in effect. Uh, drinking game is in effect. 23 comments, Tetsu wiki. Uh, what are we talking about? Well, there's some, there's some news from the world of tape ears. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay, oh no, the follow-up stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't have time to do any of this stuff. So there's that whole list of FU there. Right, so there's FU. Yeah. News so from the world. Now. Okay, th- th- yeah. I don't need to say anything. Forget the so rundown. Like, just let's just launch okay. into it. FU. Okay, so FU, the red letter media guy. <laughs> I'm going to have to Google it. <laughs> Steve, I want to say Stephen Plinkett. Okay, right. We'll leave it at that. Red letter media guy, Stephen Plinkett. Uh, okay, you know how I hate Rio? Yeah. I hate Rio. Not the the city the Not film the city, i hate yeah. it so much as we've now explained in previous episodes i hate it so much that i recently watched the sequel <laughs> rio 2 <laughs> and you know what it's actually pretty good <laughs> and, and so this led me to realize why i hate rio so much humans the human not that i specifically hate humans but I dislike the Rio movie because of the human characters. Mm-hmm. They make it awful. And also some of the annoying little birds in it, the ones voiced by, I don't know, Jamie Foxx or Will I Am or whatever. Um, um, they're just terrible. Rio 2 has none of that. It's quite good. And it has this big battle at the end, which is basically Avatar, but with parrots. How okay. big is Texas? Um, now, you did some research on this, and the well, answer is... I looked on Google Maps and eyeballed it, and I said it was slightly smaller than France. And is it slightly bigger than France? Uh, one of those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we did look into that. Thank yep. you to... Uh, there's a lot of people we're meant to mention here. <laughs> yep, some people. There we just go. Got your answer. <laughs> nice. Um, and the other Got thing... nice was- clarity there for FU. Yeah. Spotted Owlet was mentioned last time in connection with Richard Minus Hagen, and I expressed, I believe, some uncertainty over the name. And of course, it is the Spotted Owlet. I wanted to say African Spotted Owlet, but it's from 
tropical southern Asia. So India, Pakistan, and I think bits of Southeast Asia. Athene, Brahma, I think. Sounds about right. Okay. Okay. That's FU. Good. It worked. Good. News from the world uh, of news. News from yeah. the world of news. So uh, I was meant to look, as I was saying, I was meant to look on Facebook because I, I told loads of people to remind me some stuff. Thank you to the people that reminded me of stuff. They include Richard Hing. Thank you, Richard. I believe you wished for a reminder about owls. Tristan Stock. Did you hear about the new tape here? Well, hey, steady on there. Marcus Buller suggests we mention regener- regenerative abilities of lungfish. I'm sorry, Marcus, that ain't going to happen. Cameron McCormick. <laughs> Too late. Marco Lev Boscher. Maybe a good time to show some drafts from Cryptozoologicon Volume 2. <laughs> uh, yes. So, hey, Darren, Darren, did you know if you, if you um, support me on Patreon, you can see some pictures from Cryptozoologicon Volume 2. Just well, to prove I that did. it is real. Yeah, so John and I are both on Patreon, or Patreon as I prefer to pronounce it. Yes, Patreon probably is a better pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Spot. Patrons. <laughs> um, well, they are quite patronising. Patronising patrons. Uh, John, Termel, yeah, thanks, John. Nick Grabau, like your banana bacillosaurus, thanks, really cool. And, uh, and so on and so forth. Right, okay, sorry, going off at a tangent here. News from the world of Darren and John. Do you know what SRA stands for? Uh, no, I don't know what SRA stands for. SRA stands for... Oh my for- God, we've mangled this. I was saying news from the world of news, and you just did some random um, Facebook comments, and then we're going news from the world of Darren and John, and then we'll be back to world- <laughs> news from the world of news. Well, I know what I'm doing. We're so really I'm good at this. Know. We're really good at this. Okay, come on. Yeah, Professionals. What? SRA. Um, SRA. SRA is the scholarly research of the anomalous meeting, ah, which yes. I attended and spoke at in uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, yeah, I think it, I think it was the, the weekend just gone, the end of February. So uh, this was a really really neat meeting. Um, I mean. Uh, regular listeners might know that I'm uh, got quite an interest in cryptozoology. You've mentioned it quite a few times. Scholarly research to the anomalous did have a couple of cryptozoology themed talks, but it also had some um, stuff, some other stuff, some weird stuff. Basically, anything to do with scholarly research on the anomalous. It was organised by Gordon Rutter, who's a well-known kind of person in, in the world of Fortiana and such, and Charles Paxton, who is a kind of statistical ecologist who um, also has an interest in evaluating eyewitness testimony and sea monster sightings and stuff. So um, so I gave a talk called The Evolution of Sea Monsters, and it was about the idea that um, that over time people's interpretations of sea monsters as flesh and blood animals has itself evolved. So their concept of what these animals are has evolved. And I discovered discovered in quotes because it's kind of known already but there there is a, a, a kind of trend there there's like a sort of pre a long prehistoric survivor phase uh from the the victorian times late 1800s up to like early 1900s then once you get to bernard hooverman's there's this phase of like inventing weirdy new creatures um and um and over time it's like <clears throat> 
that the opinions on what sea monsters might be become more divorced from the rest of from mainstream biology. There's a time in the 1800s where you've got, if you think of the biggest, like most important biologists of the time, Richard Owen, Thomas Huxley, and a bunch of others, they are commenting on sea monsters. So it's like you think of biologists; these guys are also talking about sea monsters. Whereas today, if you think of biologists, your leading biologists, whoever that might be. Can, has there ever been any occasion where those people might mention sea monsters? No, it's just irrelevant. It just doesn't come up, come up at all. Um, I think, and I think there's been like a sort of increasing amount of divergence of sea monster research and cryptozoology in general with respect to the rest of the rest of biology. And uh, there's there's a lot of, of other stuff there. I mean, I, uh, I, I should be I'll be getting a paper out of that. Um, Charles Paxton gave a talk on eyewitness testimony and Bigfoot at the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh. <laughs> so. This is really cool. He's a, uh, he's already gone online talking about this research, so I'm allowed to say what the basics of it are. But he and Gordon Rutter, they, they got a couple of people, dressed them up in Patterson style, well, they got as Bigfoots, and then they got them to walk around in among some like redwood trees in a, in a park in Scotland. And then they uh, got witnesses to like you know report on what they observed. And, and it was all to do with like... <laughs> how reliable witnesses yeah. are. Uh, and they also ask people to deliberately lie. And, uh, and that gives you really interesting. Ins- I, I, I don't want to say too much about what they, what their conclusions were, but it's some really ex- interesting insights on eyewitness behavior. So, uh, and then the other stuff wasn't at all to do with anything remotely zoological, but it was interesting. Anyway, Roger, Roger Musson, who's a geologist from the BGS, the British geological survey, he gave a talk on what he called the Bala earthquake of 1974, which I'd never heard of, but I have heard of the, uh, is it the Berwick, Berwick Mountain UFO crash? There's this thing called the British Roswell where people thought a UFO crashed on a hillside in Wales. Yeah. And, um, and it's always been a mystery as to what was actually reported. There was like an, an alleged rumbling noise and then people observing lights and stuff on a hillside. Um, well, it turned out I hadn't, I hadn't ever heard this. Not that I'm a, you know pay much attention to UFO stories, but it turned out that this all happened at exactly the same time as a documented earthquake, at exact the exact same place. And of course, being based at the British Geological Survey, um, he was able to go to the records. And there's tons and tons and tons of really detailed documentation of this earthquake. And um, cut a very long story short, it's absolutely convincing to. You know, if, if you saw the data he was talking about, convincing that people heard a rumble or felt or felt slash heard a rumble, assumed it was an object crashing into the ground, like a plane or something, looked out the window at night and they see lights moving around on a hillside. They put two and two together. They think they they think the rumble is something to do with the lights. There's no there's no indication that it's earthquake lights. These weird phenomena where lights come out of the ground or whatever. But um, there was also at the exact same time because people went up onto the hillside to investigate where they thought the rumble had come from, some poachers who were lamping, that's when you shine bright lights on foxes or deer or whatever to kill them, some poachers were disturbed from their nocturnal activities, and um, they almost certainly were responsible for these for these lights. Plus, of course, there was there's this famous story about this woman who went out, she was a nurse, and she went out to help, thinking there was actually a plane crash, and she's like one of the most important eyewitnesses, but... Whatever, there's tons more data on the actual earthquake than I ever thought there was. So, hmm. yeah. How's it going with the two-minute rule, by the way? You meant to be watching the clock. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, very quickly, 
Bettina Bildhauer. Now, she's a medievalist, and she's written a really interesting book on medieval ideas about blood. And she gave a, a, a talk, a really cool talk, on monsters of the Middle, Middle Ages. So this story about um, this like motif of crane-headed people cropped up in several stories, and she explained all that. just seems to be completely fictional. Someone just made it up. They didn't really go and find a race of crane-headed people. <laughs> and, um, and also she spoke about the feminization of certain medieval monsters, where there's this whole idea – I wasn't fully aware of this beforehand – but there's this whole idea during medieval times that basically – uh, blood has got kind of imbued some sort of special powers and certain kinds of blood kind of become refined and they're sort of higher and better than other kinds of blood. And in women, if blood doesn't like, isn't let out of their body in the fashion that people imagine it is during medieval times, then, or whatever, then, <laughs> then <laughs> women become more toxic over time. Yeah. So postmenopausal women or women that have got nothing below the waist or whatever they're like the most toxic venomous kind of women there are so uh like mermaids and dragon ladies and stuff which because they're not menstruating they're super toxic and so there was this all stuff about (laughs) venomous female characters to do with like the fact that they weren't letting their weren't laying blood out and the fact that that was linked to ideas about basilisks and dragons and there were even some attempts to like deliberately feminize dragons to yes (laughs) <laughs> people they're crazy well yeah i was so i said a lot of this seems a little bit unfair to you know a bit negative uh t- towards women do we know what did did people actually did women in particular talk about this during medieval times and and turned out that yeah there are a few that said what a load of rubbish <laughs> don't pay any attention but on the other hand there are also many that thought that menstruation what the hell's all that about so maybe they weren't you know yeah i can understand it is something pretty terrible and evil um and then the last talk (laughs) the last talk was by mike dash well-known um uh, historian and writer on 14 subjects and stuff our artist pictures what the witness saw and this was all about the idea that um certain famous like depictions of the paranormal or fortiana or whatever the 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 um, illustrations produced by like professional artists have been of paramount importance in terms of like how we've remembered this event, alleged event, forever afterwards. And in particular, the most memorable and most iconic images of like renditions of Bigfoot and UFO sightings and ghosts and all that stuff. The ones that have proved to have eternal life what do you call them you know the ones that are going to be per- perpetuated forever throughout the literature there's a set of ideals artistic ideals that they embody they they're like they're, they're framed in a certain way or they they have a certain kind of composition or or something about them that makes them sort of iconic um memorable things a uh, classic example is i think it's frame 358 of the Patterson footage which is the the that one yeah yeah. <laughs> well demonstrated for our listeners. Yes, there you go. Yeah. Well, people told me that I need to show more stuff to listeners. What was it? I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry. Tangent. Tangent. So yeah. SRA. Uh, that it was. It was good, and a couple of publications are going to result from it. I really enjoyed it. I went to the zoo afterwards and uh, photographed lots of animals in the pouring rain and howling wind and the mm-hmm. freezing cold. It was a horrible day. But that was good because it meant that some of the animals, like the cassowary they've got, um, were in the house, yep. in their little houses. 
And these days, zoos have often got it so you can like go behind the scenes and you're looking in the house. So instead of a cassowary being like 10 metres away, it was like 20 centimetres away. So I took about 300 photographs like right up close <laughs> to this cassowary. Um, <laughs> Paparazzi in the house. Well, cassowary didn't seem to mind. <clears throat> cassowary don't care. Cassowary Cassowary. <laughs> cassowary kick your ass. Um, right. Other we, than that, look, I've been drawing. Okay, I'll, yep. Yep. Yeah, that's excellent. Mm. Working um, on the books. Good. Right, so are we ready for news for the wor- from the world of news now? Well, it's going to be an unusual news from the world of news yep. because I haven't... Let's see. Let's play a little game here. Mm. Let's... Oh, no, no. There's some stuff we obviously did do research on. Yeah. But the stuff I haven't done research on, let's just see what you can remember. But where do you want to start? What I can remember? I can't remember anything. I don't have a memory. Just start. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, Right. Let's start with Eotaria. Oh, so, like I just said, sorry, I was reading something there. Um, yeah. I haven't got the paper in front of me. Okay, but I know it's by Bobby Bosnecker and maybe Morgan Churchill. And it's a new fossil um, uh, otariad, so fur seal sea lion type thing. And uh, uh, a really early one. Okay, good. <laughs> right. uh, Puru. Parasaurus? 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 I've always said it Parasaurus, but it's from, because it's not from Peru, it's from Brazil. Parasaurus. It's a super gigantic caiman from the Miocene of South America. And um, yeah, again, haven't got the paper in front of me, haven't read it, but uh, the paper is about its bite strength. Which I'm guessing is fairly high. Well, it's famously big. Hmm. Parasaurus. I mean, its skull is like this big. Yeah. Like, that size. And uh, so the whole animal is like over 10 meters long. That's pretty big. And it's and it's got, its skull is really deep and sort of wide as well. Hmm. And the estimated bite force is huge. Yes. Like, yep. and I, now bear in mind, you know, most people are familiar with these studies of bite force in Tyrannosaurus hmm. and various studies indicating that Tyrannosaurus's bite strength, bite force exceeds that of virtually all living animals with the possible exception of alligators because alligators, they're able to like, you know, break bones and smash turtles in half and stuff <clears throat> to use technical terminology yeah. and um, but Parasaurus is a, you know, it's an alligatorid and it's a gigantic alligatorid so, uh, so this these these authors whose names I can't remember, they uh, did some work on this and found that it's got a humongous bite force, possibly I think exceeding that of Tyrannosaurus rex, which is what you kind of which is what you might predict for a gigantic alligator, alligatorid. Yes. But um, yeah, no, I don't think anyone had done this work before. Aureliano et al. There you go. I have found the paper, but okay. Right. Tito Aureliano et al. Morphometry or morphometry, bite force and paleobiology of the late Miocene Cayman, Parasaurus Brasiliensis. Okay. Well, two minute rule. That'll do. Yeah, that'll do. Okay. Um, diverse. How do you say this? Docodonts? 
Dokodons. Dokodons, yeah. So a couple of new papers involving Zheiji Lau and colleagues on new Dokodonts, which are a group of stem mammals from the Mesozoic. (laughs) (laughs) And um, uh, Dokodonts are kind of like uh, conventionally been imagined to be like shrewy things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But um, there's a couple of new taxa. One of them is called Agilidokodon. And and it's it's kind of like a gracile, slim, digited, uh, probably scansorial climbing animal. So it reveals mm-hmm. kind of greater diversity within docodonts than imagined before. And in I think I think this was published in Science. The same, maybe even the same issue. They the same, a similar or the same set of authors published another one. Again, led by JG Lau. Lau. Oops, sorry. Uh, and this one is a, like a robust, chunky-limbed, mole-like subterranean digger thing. And that one's called Docofossa? 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 Docofossa. Um, Docofossa. I can't find a species name. So it's called Docofossa something. Okay. Who so needs a, who needs a species name? Yeah. It's just a one off. It's a yeah, uni, uninomial. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's kind of as so there's now these days. As was the fashion at the time. So there's like a there's like now slim digited little scansorial docodonts and uh, robust handed kind of molesque <laughs> um, digging ones. Yeah. There you go. Tree going docodonts and digging docodonts. Yeah, middle Jurassic of China. Right. BD in Madagascar. What's BD? BD is Batrachochytridium? Batrachochytridium? Batracho... I'm going to have to Google that. Batrachochytridium. <laughs> the best part of the show. Batrachochytridium dendrobotidis, which is this killer fungus that infects amphibians and uh, causes them to die Batrachochytrium Batrachochytrium I'm going to go for that pronunciation okay. <laughs> B, that's why we call it BD <laughs> and um, yeah BD uh, as is I hope universally well known has been widely implicated in the extinction and disappearance of amphibian populations specifically you know mostly in the tropics but worldwide it's uh, thought to be um, endemic to Xenopus, and I think this is right. I think it's, it's been shown that it's like a normal thing for Xenopus to have it, and then as people have taken Xenopus all around the world, they've accidentally infected other local frog populations. Some frogs, some anurans, frogs and toads, seem to be somewhat immune to it, and um, others definitely aren't. And as soon as, like in the Central and South America, as soon as they became infected with it. They, basically everything seems to have gone. This is like a wave of extinction. And the fungus is able to expand its range, certainly altitudinally, um, due to climate change. As, as conditions become like, as, the, as mountains and stuff become like warmer, mm-hmm. it seems that this fungus is able to like increase its its elevational uh, distribution year on year. And it seems that there's an in-step correlation between that and the disappearance of local frogs and salamanders. So areas that seem to be free of BD, 
like Madagascar, there's been lots of concern, you know, make sure you don't get... Because sure, people, oh, people have moved it around as well. They reckon that people have... In fact, for a time, it was actually thought that wildlife camera people... Mm. photographers had been the main vector for this because of course the, they march around the world deliberately seeking out obscure yeah. endangered populations they are the perfect vectors to, to wipe them out so i don't know if anything came of that it was it certainly has been a concern and uh if you look at a few books on madagascan animals glaw i'm looking at glaw and vences amphibians and reptiles of madagascar they got a big section in there where they say make sure you like disinfect your boots and, all, and, and your gear and everything before you go to madagascar make sure you don't introduce bd this new paper i believe that's a lot of preamble two minute rule john yeah. come on uh, oh where's the paper i can't find it I think the new paper, which was I think in Nature, I think said that it turns out that BD is widespread across Madagascar and it's present in lots of native frogs. And, uh, oh dear, this sounds like bad news. But turns out... No, this is dangerous because I don't have the paper in front of me. I think that I think the point of the paper was that it seems to be endemic and they're kind of, they've, they've co-evolved with it. So it's been there for an extended time, and like Xenopus, the the animals there have, like, I don't want to say immune to it, because that implies that it's like a toxin that can kill you as soon as you touch it, which is not the case. But it seems that it does not affect them negatively. Yeah. I can't, there I can't. Go. Okay. Uh, I could be completely wrong. If, I, if I'm completely wrong, we'll, we'll So we'll some good news for frogs, maybe. Well, actually, well, maybe. It's, it's old news, but... To them, but it's interesting news. Well, it, well, it parallels it parallels the the case for white nose syndrome in bats because that's been that's killing bats in North America, and people have always been afraid that oh, what if bats in other continents get infected by it? And then people were discovered in Europe. But then it turns out in Europe it's endemic. It's been here for decades. The bats have co-evolved with it, and it doesn't kill them. So. It seems that white nose syndrome, which again, it's a it's a weird fungus. It seems to have gotten into North America recently, and the bats there haven't co-evolved with it, and it kills them. Maybe that's the same with BD. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, let's move on then. So we've had a lot of deaths recently. Yeah. Who do we want to start with? <laughs> Shall we start with? Uh, we need to bring the tone down a little bit. Not, yeah, well, that's the wrong tone. We need to be a bit more sober here. Bring some the tone people. up. Maybe. Bring the tone up, because we're, we're, you know, this is quite, this is a sad thing. So, yes, uh, we discussed Eleanor Kish a couple of episodes back, noted paleo artist, quite, you know, sad to, to hear of her passing, and um, two also noted paleo artists, uh, we've recently learned of their, uh, their deaths as well. So, um, uh, Vladimir... Crib, pronounced K, uh, spelt K R B, but uh, yeah. uh, I'm reliably informed pronounced crib, not curb, not curb. Um, I've forgotten. I've forgotten his dates. Uh, it was uh, he was 71, so he uh, died uh, end of January. And um, well, would you? You're you're a paleo artist, I understand. Do you want? Do you want to say about him? Well, to see his work, I believe he's he was Canadian paleontologist, paleontologist, paleoartist. I think that's where he got most of his work. 
I know of him from Dinosaurs Past and Present, Volume 2, which is, by, by the way, a book everyone should get, both volumes. Even though it's old, it's, if you're at all interested in paleo art, these books are great. <clears throat> um, and he's got a style which is... There's my copies. Yes, indeed. Pristine. I, th- I believe you can get them quite cheaply on Amazon now, so yeah, well worth it. Cost um, me a fortune back in the day. Let's still at the yeah, price. I remember. I remember paying fifty dollars for the. I saved up for so long. I could only buy these on my trips to the Natural History Museum in London. Yeah, I had. I found them. Yeah, I had to go into a place. There was no Amazon back then, kids. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. So, Vladimir. Cribb's style is quite impressionistic in the old style sense. You know, it's not just messy. Oh, I'd forgotten about that one. It's Styracosaurus. Yeah, it's really nice stuff. I really like yeah. his work. It's, um, it's quite, uh, what's the word? It's sort of monotonal. I don't know. There's not a lot of variation in colour. It's quite... Um, but it's really quite interesting. doesn't look like a lot of other work. But they are... His, his animals are Renaissance animals. They're mm. kind of... They're they're fairly well proportioned, quite gracile dinosaurs. There's, I, I remember particularly his Camarasaurus, which is f- is reaching up to feed from a cycad or palm or something. It's and in it's, that, in, it's um, is it? Oh wait, maybe you think of a different one. But there's some in a storm, like in. A, oh no, that's that's Opisthocelacordia. Oh, that's, that's yeah. yeah, but so his his dinosaurs are, are like. Appropriately long-limbed and skinny. I mean, you know, as with as with a lot of the art of the time, because it's from the it's from the late seventies and early eighties, isn't it? That sort of time frame. Yeah. They they uh, they you know they're they're shrink wrapped to a degree. You know, you can see all the openings in the skulls and everything. But um, but no, they're they're good looking mo- modern looking post Renaissance dinosaurs. And I would say he's most famous for the. Um, the murals at the Royal Tyrell. Yes. So, which, as a younger person looking at these in books, I was always frustrated by the fact that you never, they never show the whole thing in a book. Yes. They always show you the, they always show you the bit where there's like a Centrosaurus that's died after a flood, and there's like a, a Dromaeosaur scavenging from it, or they show the bit where there's a a Tyrannosaur. I think it's an Albertosaurus. Um, that's like got one foot on a carcass and is roaring or something. But they don't show you that those are part of a giant, you know, wall-sized um, mural. Yeah, yeah. And I think with a, a couple of pterosaurs, like a, a landing red Quetzalcoatlus in the background. Now, they, they, look, they look really awesome. They're really good-looking murals. I got a feeling that I first saw those in that... Book by Wallace, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaur, which is relevant to the next person we'll be talking about. This one, yeah, for our listeners, <laughs> The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaur, because this is probably the very first book I ever saw which introduced me to Renaissance dinosaurs. Sorry, Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, America. <laughs> There's a sloth in your renaissance. The renaissance. Because, yeah. 
So, yeah. so, but you read so you you did a little bit of biographical research just now, and and yeah. um, found out that he was trained by um, Burian. Burian, which is quite yeah. interesting. So you might guess from his name, Vladimir Krib was Czech, um, but he trained under under Burian, which. I would love to know more about that. Uh, I've just read it in a in an obituary. Don't know any more about it than that. Of course, when you say an artist trains under another one, it can mean a couple of things. It can mean that they came around their house every weekend and drank beers together, <laughs> <laughs> or it can mean that they actually sat in studios and had deep metaphysical discussions and such. And I don't know what the case is. Um, it, there can be. There, I mean, because obviously there could be proper tutelage. Is that a word? Proper, yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, which which makes this even more interesting because, of course, as we've already established, Crib is essentially illustrating, you know, Bacterian, Greg Paulian dinosaurs. Burian wasn't doing that for the majority of his career, but he did switch to doing that in the late, well, in the nineteen eighties. He uh, he did illustrate. Um, uh, like he he redid kind of like uh, horned dinosaurs and and a couple of other things and and showed them as looking more sort of grace art more sort of Bacterian. yeah but um yeah but love to know love to know more about that and yeah it's a shame that, he's he's his artwork isn't very available online um which is a shame but yeah no the, I mean the the thing that I read from that had the information about the the obituary that was. That was about it. Oh, yep. Burian died in 1981. So what I'd have said about him doing lots of stuff in the 1980s is unlikely to have been correct. Yeah. I think I meant the 70s. Yeah. Um, 60s so, and 70s, so, isn't he, mostly? Yeah. yeah. So, so there you go. Uh, Vladimir Kribb, a uh, quite an influential artist, despite the fact there's hardly any information about him, and, uh, and, and we would clearly love to know more. So that we move on to the next uh, paleo artist who's recently deceased, and also extremely noteworthy person. We don't know how to pronounce his name. <laughs> we had a so, discussion um, about this beforehand. And I think it's Stephen. Darren thinks it might be Stefan. And we we disagree, not surprisingly, on his last name as well. I would say Cherkas. And what do you say? No, I'm going to go with that as well. <laughs> Cherkas. Cherkas? Cherkas. Because it's spelled C-Z-E-R-K-A-S. Cherkas. Stefan Cherkus. Yeah. Um Stephen. And Stephen, we're going to we're going to go with Stephen, uh but I I've got a kind of vague recollection of it being Stefan, but I I could be completely wrong. I don't know really don't even know where I got that from. So, um sadly he he died uh due to well complications relating to uh, liver cancer. He was it was only was he 63, I think. Yeah. Um and um Everybody who's got any interest in the world of paleo art or indeed dinosaurs, you know, knows of his stuff and his work. Uh, to, towards you know the later part of his career, the last uh, ten years, he has been associated with the publication of several technical and semi-technical articles, which are extremely controversial, and uh, they're all to do with the relationship between birds and dinosaurs, and, and in particular, they focus on the idea, he, 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 he teamed up with um, Alan Fiducia and those guys, and um, seemed to support the idea that feathered dromaeosaurs and whatnot uh, are birds, but 
they are like they're part of the bird lineage, but they're nothing to do with dinosaurs. <laughs> they're like some separate lineage. And I believe the very last thing he published, I think it was, uh, I can't remember where it was published. I'm thinking of the journal Naturwissenschaften, but that can't be right. Um, they published he and he and colleagues published a paper where they um, they basically came up with the idea of these things being sauriscians, but they're not dinosaurs. The, the, the bird like the bird like manoraptorans are not dinosaurs, which is uh, you know it's 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 not a defensible, it's not a, like a reasonable perspective. But um, you know, and, and we could talk for a long time about that whole thing. Of course, it wasn't novel to this paper. He published it in a couple of other things before. Uh, his article on Scansoriopteryx that's in mm. the Feathered Dinosaurs one. But, right? Okay. Leading off with I, the negative. Yes, yeah, sorry. I was going to say that kind of stuff. But we, I want to get that out of the way because I don't want to talk about him in a negative way. I think that stuff's problematical. It won't go to... It won't, you know, um, stand the test of time. But his arty stuff we, yeah. is, 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 what, is what we're here to talk about. So I mentioned The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs by Joseph Wallace. And on the front of it, that had Allosaurus model... Have you ever have you seen this Allosaurus? Yeah, yeah. I've, yeah oh, no, I've not seen, in real life. No. Ah, no, I have. I've seen it in real life, and it's uh, it's not as big as you might think. Yeah. It's uh, it's about it's about this tall. It's half sized, isn't it? Yeah, half sized. Yeah. And this book, Rise from the Dinosaur. For those of you looking at it, you see it's all. You see how it shows that basically dinosaurs are like evil, snarling, dark night creatures. Yeah. And that was my that was my impression of this book. I was like, oh wow, dinosaurs are cool. They're like. Night creatures and they're night black, <laughs> but it turns like the out Darth Vader of animals. <laughs> exactly right, but turns out it's just a compositiony thing because that that model's not black at all. It's light brown. Yeah, it just looks black. Yeah. Um. So I was we were just talking about Vladimir Crib, and I turned back one article in um, Dinosaurs Past and Present, Volume Two. Uh, which had his work in it, and the article before that is Stephen Shirkers talking about stegosaur plates and where he argues oh, yeah. that they were one row. And I believe that's gone back and forth several times. I don't know what the current thinking is. I think it might be back to the alternating. Um, I wouldn't say plates. it's gone back and forth. No, it hasn't gone back and forth several times. It's Sturkers. Sorry, it went back several back and forth several times before he wrote this article. Yeah. So he made this proposal and it was sort of popular for a while but popular only i would say in the sort of popular sphere because of that article and because of that book dinosaurs a global view Mm -hmm. which he co-authored with his wife sylvia and a famous big book on you know lavishly illustrated got lots of nice paintings in it by uh civic and and uh, um mark hallett and other people and um but but no, among like people that have worked technically on stegosaurs, they've. Oh, oh, I don't. I think it might be wrong to say they've consistently favoured. But certainly since the nineteen eighties, even about the time that he published that paper, the idea of alternating but paired arrangement has been favoured and is favoured today. No, not uh, paired. Because paired is alternate- not alternating. Alter, but there's two rows. Two rows, alternating. But they're, but they're alternating. Yeah. So I suppose you're right, they're not paired. Okay, yeah. but yeah. I know. So so from ancestrally, stegosaurs are, it seems, paired. And then at some point, 
that happens in yeah. in uh, which yeah, is an unusual that, thing, which is why the argument that there were a single row um, was interesting because it sort of made them more conservative in a way. Um, that's right, yeah, because he even figures a lizard tail, doesn't he, an iguana does. tail. Yeah. Anyway, it's an interesting article, probably wrong, but it was interesting. Um, and he was the, uh, him and his wife are organized dinosaurs past and present. They are the editors and they organized the exhibition that went with it. Um, so that was a pretty important thing they did as well. Mm. Uh, the first, I would say, I don't know of anything else which concentrates so much on the visual representation of dinosaurs. I don't think there is anything else. Certainly not previous to this. Mm. So I think it's quite an important... Uh, contribution and they're beautiful books and they've got so many big nice prints in them um yeah probably my most used books ever yeah yours are falling to bits aren't they they are yeah yeah yes and they're covered in paint so (laughs) you can tell what what pictures i like to copy because they've got paint stains on them (laughs) yeah i i've said many times in books and articles that greg paul's uh, what's it called? The, the Science and Art of Restoring the Life Appearance of Dinosaurs and Their Relatives, a Vigorous How-To Guide, classic GSB title. That is kind of, it's very, very dated now. Obviously, there's a lot that, that we wouldn't support today. But um, nobody's really done anything like that ever since. It's, it was really good for its time, and it remains, you know, quite an important historical thing now. There's... um. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, so Stefan Jerkus, because he's been making these these life size or half life size models, uh, been quite a significant uh, person pushing a sort of modern, you know, fairly realistic view of dinosaurs. Of course, he also did a famous um, life size Carnotaurus, which is on the cover of that book by Sohoyos, the hunting dinosaurs, mm-hmm. National Geographic tie in book, which is. Which is kind of weird. It's kind of an annoying book. Some of the, some of the, the chapters in it, sections in it, I find really you know useless. But others are really quite uh, nice and valuable. Um, kind of biographical summaries of certain researchers and stuff they do. If, you, if you're interested in like tracing ideas, changing ideas over history, it's a really interesting idea. And Cherkus also, of course, changed his dromaeosaurs. His, he, he did a, a bunch of um, veloc- um, not velociraptors, dinonychuses, uh, and did them in, you know, as was the style at the time, <laughs> did, did them as scaly skinned things. Yeah. And then, I, I have to say, though, I mean, I, I again, I say this all the time, I'll stop me if I've said this before, I probably have, but I, I tell people routinely today, particularly journalists, it's like, you do realise that quite a few people were, have been saying since the 70s that you should put feathers on those bird-like dinosaurs. And conservative paleontologists are saying, no, 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 you shouldn't. No, you shouldn't. I, I've mentioned this before. I yes. have said this before. So yes. I won't say it again. Yeah. I think, I think yes. Um, going back to Stephen Shirkus for a second, he's uh, uh, just his sculptures. <laughs> They're really good. I don't think we mentioned that, but they are. They're really nice. They're really nice sculptures. I'm just looking at these little... I think it's quite small, this Stegosaurus, but it's it's a beautiful little model. Um, I th- I really think he's he was a top-notch sculpture, sculptor. Um, so, yeah. Should we move on to... 
Yeah, I think we've said we've said more or less. Yeah, so so you know, RIP and all that, and uh, uh, hopefully our uh, positive thoughts and appreciation came through for both of those gentlemen there. Indeed, and I think uh, you know, even though I think we'll get to this later in the podcast because of um, a cash for question, but even if there's a significant disagreement with a big portion of someone's work, like there is with Stephen Shirkers, for example, doesn't mean we can't appreciate the other things they did. And um, I think he's what he's done for paleo art was uh, is, is really significant um, with these books mm. and his mm. direct contribution as well. So oh, one, one, yeah, one more thing I want to say about him, and that's that he's often mentioned. Again, this is coming back to the, the technical work he was involved in, but he was involved in the obtaining of this uh, lioning theropod, which was called uh, Archaeoraptor, and then turned out to be a composite of a Microraptor mm. and a Yanornis, and um, there's this. And there's a popular story. You don't hear it so much these days, actually, because it's passe now. Is that passe? <laughs> Whatever. It's it's like yeah. it's blah, it's, it's like yeah. yeah, it's kind of not part of the story because we've now got so many amazing feathered non-bird dinosaurs. But um, for a while, it was like, haha, this is the fossil that fooled the experts. Those stupid experts. They looked at this thing and they couldn't tell that it was a composite. But CT scanning and the wizardry of magic vision and glue. Yeah showed that it was determined to be a hoax and this is why all those paleontologists in their ivory towers are buffoons because they can't see a f- fake in front of them as said by Storz Olsen and <laughs> well you know the, 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 um, the people who dislike very much the idea that birds are dinosaurs have la- they latched onto Archaeoraptor, Piltdown bird, all this kind of stuff um, but I want to say, I've put this on record before, I've got this into print. I can tell you, dear listener, for a fact that the day, the day the Archaeoraptor was published, people were looking, and it, it was published in National Geographic. This was a big thing, because they were supposed to, Cherkus and Phil Curry and maybe others, they were supposed to be publishing a technical paper, and of course they wanted the technical paper to come up before the National Geographic article, but it didn't work out. I believe due to problems... Uh, you know, encountered during review. Appropriate and fair problem, so it turns out. Doubts about the authenticity of the specimen. But the National Geographic article ran it anyway, and Nat Geo, this feathered dinosaur special, um, had, we're talking about, I think this is 1999, they had like a double-page picture of so-called Archaeoraptor. Well, yes, I can tell you, the day it came out, people who know non-bird dinosaurs very well were pointing at this thing and saying, that's really weird that, you know, a certain aspects of the look of the slab and the arrangement of the specimen and saying, I suspect this is actually a composite. And this was the same time as the, um, an, an SVP meeting in the United States, which I, which I was at and Jerkers was at it as well. And I was talking to him and I said, you know, that people are saying that this is, uh, and I'd, I'd heard this off several people. And I don't want to say, who they are because I don't have their permission to repeat their opinion. But Jerry Harris, for example, is one I remember. Jerry, well-known dinosaur paleontologist. Um, people were saying this is this is probably you know a composite. And Jerker said to me, he said, "No way, we like cat scanned that thing a thousand times." <laughs> that was his answer at the time. But the point is that right from the start, it wasn't that everyone was just, "Oh my god, it's so beautiful, let's accept mm. it with open arms." They weren't accepting it straight away. They were. Uh, 
Yeah, well, I think one of the main problems with it, like Piltdown Man, is it doesn't actually fit, right? You had this apparently quite, um, like, birdline top half with a surprisingly long tail. It made no sense, right? It didn't, because mm-hmm. um, we had, yeah, it, it didn't fit the the pattern that we would predict from the cladistic analyses. So it was it was a weird outlier anyway. Yeah. Um, it's not surprising people thought it was strange. Um, yes. Okay. And let's not start talking about Piltdown because that's a complicated story. It's not, again, the, the, the kind of a general idea that there was just open-armed acceptance of it from the start is completely well, incorrect. Well, not I, think it's in, I think it's actually quite similar to this case in some ways. More complicated, yeah. more convoluted, yeah. but yeah. Um, okay, uh, let's move on to uh, Eugenie Clark. Oh, Eugenie Clark. So uh, Eugenie Clark, uh, so-called Shark Lady of Australia, uh, is also no longer with us. Sad news, died on February 25th. She was 92, I believe. And, um, okay, we're all about the tetrapods and we don't really do sharks and stuff. And she <laughs> predominantly worked, she was an ichthyologist and predominantly worked on poisonous fish, although I'm not, can't say I'm familiar with that research, uh, but I'm very familiar with her stuff on sharks. And uh, as a kid, um, I did go through a phase of reading all the books on sharks. So Shame, uh, shame. Yeah, I know. I, I, I went through a phase and, I, you know, I'm not ashamed of it. I'll talk about it. And um, she, uh, yeah, and, and she'd written or co-written virtually all of these or at least she was featured in them uh, as a scuba diving uh you know uh scientist enthusiast able scuba diver person and um so you know a big impact on on me as like you know the person that that a go-to person to learn about sharks and and that and i understand that's the case for a lot of people that got into sharks marine biology ichthyology so but yes, her 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 passing is uh, is very sad. Um, so yeah, Eugenie Clark and Lemon Leonard Nimoy, less uh, less Ted yeah. related, but uh, yeah, yeah. But well, he's just an awesome guy, wasn't he? And um, uh, I haven't done any research on him whatsoever. Got nothing smart to say about him, apart from the fact that it's it's sad that he's died and. Um, he he seems to have had like quite a lot of interests outside of his world of uh, you know the acting and, and stuff he was involved in. He was I, th- I think he did um, like photography. He was like a professional level photographer. He wrote poems and wrote songs and, and stuff. And he fronted a couple of TV series on um, weird like phenomena, like I don't know, World of the Strange or something. Yeah, was it which, unexplained uh, <laughs> mysteries or? Um the Twilight Zone? Did he do the Twilight Zone? Well, I noticed that Nimoy has become um, kind of very much integrated with like this kind of skeptic, neo-skeptic kind of community view of the world. And so I was curious as to if there was a reason for that, if he'd ever come out as a, you know, a, a staunch atheist or a, or a critical thinker. I mean, you kind of get the get the impression that he is a... Uh, a pretty sound person in terms of his uh, way of thinking about science and the world and stuff. And it seems most people involved in the Star Trek franchise have been really, but I don't know. I can't find any direct evidence of that. Can't yeah. find Leonard Nimoy says, I'm a skeptic or, yeah. or <laughs> something like that. 
So, because, so we don't because know. the well, 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 what the so the story online at the moment is that Westboro Baptists wanted to picket his funeral, but they couldn't because they couldn't find out where it was. Good, right? That's good. But why did they want to picket his funeral in the first place? What's he ever done to? Well, I, I, the, they don't. Yeah, we're talking about the Westboro Baptists here, aren't we? I mean, I thought the, they specifically targeted people that like had a. I don't know. I think I, I think I think they target um, people that will get them a lot of publicity. That's what I think. Hmm. And he, just the fact that he was on Star Trek is probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Um, okay, we better move on to the cash for questions. So yes. So R.I.P. Leonard Nimoy. He was. I think he was eighty-three. Yep. Mm-hmm. And more artists from Dinosaur Past and Present. That's three in the last, I don't know, six months, a year, something like that. Uh, yes. Um, okay, let's move on. Cash for questions, huh? Well, hold on one second. Okay. There's, there's a new tape here. Oh, God. Now. Not anymore. What do you think? What- <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt shot okay. it. Yeah, right. So there is there is a new tape here. Seriously, there is actually. It's called Tapras Cabamani. It's from northern South America. Have you seen this photograph of the weasel riding the green woodpecker? Yes. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> For people who haven't seen it, I put it on my Facebook wall yesterday and it's currently been shared two hundred and eighty six times, and that's just from my thing well so you know i shared it obviously from someone else sharing it so it's it's gone viral and i saw it on twitter Mm -hmm. originally saw it on twitter the photograph was taken by martin lemay it was taken in england i believe um there is there is an account of exactly what happened so martin lemay is a photograph what it looks like basically a weasel using a green woodpecker as a speeder bike and someone i'm surprised nobody's put in some like speed lines kind of you know uh, (laughs) done some little cartoons it appears to be absolutely authentic i mean i get very tired of these it must be photoshop things that surface straight away but um you can tell by the pixels darren you can tell by the pixels tell by the pixels it's quite well it is quite easy to analyze photographs now is it and look for inconsistencies but um martin may and uh partner wife or something they were they were watching the woodpecker hopping around in crazy fashion and then they realised that it was it was unhappy because it had <laughs> a weasel clinging to its back, and this weasel is like about as long as the woodpecker is. Somehow the woodpecker has gotten into flight, and uh, and I think that's the problem. People are seeing that and thinking, "Well, how can an animal fly with another one as heavy as it is on its back?" It's like you but you don't know what's going on there. That could be a jump, or that could even be you know it could have climbed and fallen from height. You don't you don't know what's going on from the one photo, and he hasn't released any others. So I think it's authentic. And you know weasels aren't that heavy. No, uh, and no, and birds have a safety margin; like they can take off with more than their weight. So exactly, exactly. I've seen people saying, "Oh, surely a woodpecker can't pick up a weasel, carry a weasel." But it's like, don't birds routinely? Okay, not woodpeckers, but aren't there loads of birds that routinely carry things their own weight or similar to it? You know, like a buzzard yeah. carrying a rabbit, that sort of thing. Yeah, and if it uh, launched out of a tree, for example, if it, if the weasel grabbed it when it was on a branch, because the most difficult thing about flying is launching. I mean, I don't know. It could be. Don't know. Could get level flight. I don't know. But as you well, say, you yeah. can't tell from this fight. From this one picture. Well, yeah, because like birds can leap. You know, I don't know, 
this this could be this could be a meter off the ground. Mm. It doesn't have to be like ten meters up. Could could it leap a meter in the ground with a weasel on its back? I, to be honest, I don't see why not. I don't see that's beyond the realms of. Wow. How do you know it's? Oh, if, by the way, we're calling it a weasel because we're in Europe. If you're in North America, you'll call it a least weasel, but it's a weasel, a muscular nivalis. Do you know how to tell the difference between a weasel and a stoat? Do you know how to tell a weasel from a stoat? No. One is weasley recognisable. <laughs> yeah, this is totally different. <laughs> oh, wow, that's really good. <laughs> okay. All right. right. Okay, so that was, what was that? That was that was part of news from the world of news. <laughs> from the world of news. Okay, right. So, cash for questions. Cash for questions. 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 Cash for questions. Um, right. So, speaking of photos of animals, um, yeah, yeah. this one's from. Oh dear. If you've got even a slightly unusual name and you want your <laughs> name pronounced correctly, included in the question, <laughs> I'm going to go with oh, Alan Alex, Alex, Alex. Serdich. Yeah. That's S-R-D-I-C. Sertich? Sounds good. Okay, and Alex asks, There's been little buzz about today about a photo of a lizard that looks like it's playing a leaf guitar. Link um, below. Link below. I don't see the link. <laughs> no. Have you seen this photo? I don't know. Uh, well, well, it doesn't really like matter. Lizard playing guitar. Hmm. Likely staged by the photographer, sadly, using a dead, dead lizard. But it led me to thinking, which tetrapods would be best at playing actual musical instruments, both in terms of anatomy and intelligence? And if you were, redes- if you were to redesign a guitar, violin, and piano for an I.I. or tapir, I hear there's a new species of tapir, huh. how would it differ from the original instrument? Yeah. That's that's a that's a very strange question, Alex. Oh, that's a good question. Well, it's but it's inspired by this photo. Yes. First, first of all, be very careful here not to spin off at a tangent, John. But these <laughs> this photo of this lizard lying on its back, posed with a leaf, which I just found by googling lizard playing, not PlayStation, but guitar. That's something Google thought I should look at. Yeah. Um, I hate these guys who do this. Hate them. Hate them. Hate them. They they are evil. So they take animals and they like they use glue and string and nails. They don't give a damn. They don't care about the animals. They're just putting them in stupid little poses. So this and I have meant. There's been quite a discussion about this on Facebook and Twitter already. Um, these people mostly the ones that get their stuff online. They're mostly in Indonesia, China. Um, I'm not saying that means anything and try not to be racist or anything, but, yeah. <laughs> but this is just not okay at all. I mean, there's, there's one guy who's, it's clearly he's used strings, wires and things to pose frogs and lizards. It's horrible. And this, so this is clearly staged. Uh, anyway, right. Moving on. What was the question? Um, <laughs> uh, in terms of anatomy and intelligence. Okay. So I've got three things written down here. Do you want to say anything first? No. Okay, number one. What was Slotus mentioned? Well, it wasn't, was it? If you were to redesign a guitar for an eye or a tape here, uh, well, okay. So Slotus can play guitars, and I know this because there's a video online. It's 
is by a band called Shmoyoho. And if you Google Shmoyoho <laughs> waiting for a sloth, you'll find a video starring Ellen DeGeneres and... Oh, no, I can't remember her name. Shmoyoho sloth. She's called Kristen Bell. So Kristen Bell was uh, awarded a sloth for her birthday by her loving boyfriend. And, and if you watch that video, there's a scene where a sloth plays a guitar. Right. Fact. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want people to watch the video because uh, I'll ruin it. I'll ruin it if I tell you what what really happened. But anyway, so that proves sloth can play guitar. Okay. So have you heard of renegrades? The renegradentia? No. Okay, well, there was in the Pacific Island, no, sorry, in the Indian Ocean, maybe Pacific Ocean, I can't remember now, but there was a little island archipelago called the Hiyi Archipelago, and a biologist called Harald Stumpka discovered a large endemic assemblage of about 100 species of small mammals called the Rhinogradentians. And uh, sadly, the islands were destroyed during nuclear tests, but, um, and so all the Rhinogradentians are extinct. But one of the Rhinocredentians, uh, it was quite a large, shaggy-coated species. It was one of the, the polyrhinal species. So it had numerous kind of parallel different uh, cavities within its complex nasal apparatus. Uh, it could be trained to perform quite complicated uh, kind of um, musical tunes. But it's uh, a completely pointless story because it doesn't involve an instrument. And Rhinocredentians... I don't know, Are you could real? give them like a little flute or something. Yeah, you, I think you could train them. Yeah. But, okay, that's also a spoof answer because Rhinocredentians are extinct. And um, the parrots. Uh, people have trained parrots to play guitar. And uh, so if you Google... <laughs> <laughs> parrot plays... Okay, parrot plays peekaboo, parrot plays golf... Parrot plays dead. Parrot plays basketball. Parrot plays Call of Duty. <laughs> no, that's not what I want to go. You know, Google for a while, if you put in dinosaurs are, dinosaurs are Jesus ponies was the top uh, response. So there's, um, there are several parrots uh, that, are, that are playing guitars. Uh, there's, um, so the, uh, sorry, Wow, it's really impressive. Okay, so watching the video. So I should don't don't start yeah. watching the videos. So yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. Podcasting. Oh, well, that's, that's an excellent part of the podcast. Darren watches videos. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So the answer is parrots. Yeah, but you'd have to design one that obviously the animal can. It's got to be small enough so that yeah, it's obviously a human-sized instrument. You don't want the animal to have to move a distance of a meter or so to or less or ish to um you know operate the bits that make the noises um um it would be no no trouble at all to train uh, a parrot to uh, to like have little pedals so it can change pitch or key or whatever and then it, it can also pluck strings or whatever and i've no doubt whatsoever that would be quite easy to do it would be for a whole bunch of animals though i mean to be honest you know seals dogs cows you could you could train them to just tap buttons and pluck strings and things. Um, 
but 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 Alex specifically asked about both anatomy and intelligence. So we know that we've, we've got good reason for thinking that that parrots and actually a bunch of other animals i mean you know this has been demonstrated for seals or sea lions uh, they have got a sense of rhythm so they have some kind of like sense of musicality you know there's there's loads of videos of like animals like you know tapping their knocking you know this kind of what i'm doing right now you know in time with the music so they clearly obviously they can hear the music they can sort of appreciate they can understand the concept of like beat and rhythm and um and they can be easily trained to to do like a simple thing. So uh, you might be getting the impression at this stage that I haven't really done much homework on this subject. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's surprising. <laughs> I did watch that slow video. <laughs> My entire life. <laughs> My entire life. <sighs> <I'm> Wait. <laughs> you love that video. Yeah. I love okay. that video. Um, I think that's answered. That well, um, several animals might be trained to do to make rhythm, basic rhythm, and in terms of anatomy, lots of animals have this sort of anatomy that would be required to hit keys yeah. or pluck strings or yeah. See, what, as what long you as you think- made it the right size. Yeah, I mean, what do you think about non-human primates? I specifically didn't think about apes and stuff because, I don't know, they just... Well, my friend Sarah has been looking for a monkey playing a banjo on YouTube for years, and apparently there isn't such a thing, which I couldn't believe because I thought that YouTube would be at least 20% monkeys playing (laughs) banjos. Yeah. Um, It seems like that's pretty much, you know... Uh, after cats, that's pretty yeah. much what you'd expect to find on YouTube. Pretty much, uh, isn't it? Doesn't huh. exist. Well, as far I've never seen one. Um, there's a bit of homework. Because <laughs> banjo seems like you know monkey-sized guitar, maybe big monkey, small banjo. Yep. Yeah, you're going to try this now, aren't you? Well, yeah, because if she really did Google the term monkey playing banjo, that might be the reason for her lack of success. Because uh, now I'm not getting any results either. No. So I'm just putting in, putting in some smart monkey names, <clears throat> like Capuchin. <laughs> yeah, come on. People would put monkey in there. Um, yes. Okay. There's a bit of homework for, for the um, listeners. <laughs> what the monkey playing the banjo? <laughs> <laughs> we love Seri- to be wrong. Yeah. We yeah. do the serious science on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I found a picture of a baboon playing a banjo. Oh, that's pretty good. I'll send you that link. Uh, it's the photos labelled Real Monkey Playing Banjo. Is it a video it's, or is it just it's, a No, it's a black and white old photo. Oh, yeah. So I don't think... Oh, and it comes from a lot of photographs that also show kittens putting out washing... And cooking. Yeah. <laughs> Images, photos and videos tagged with cats in clothes. <laughs> oh, Real Darren, monkey play. I was on the street last night and I saw... Uh, a monkey playing a banjo? No. It was it was one of those, you know... Well, it was a large dog in a jumper. You were on the street? Kind of a way you, you, you were out. I was, I was out. I was, well, it was, I was, the point was it was on the street, right? And it was dark. It was like after dark, and I saw a really big dog. I think it was sort of like an Irish wolfhound type thing in a jumper. 
And for a split okay. second, it was the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. Huh. I thought it was a werewolf. Had you been drinking? <laughs> no, but you get it. Because it's not usual to put really big dogs in jumpers. If you see no. one of these things in the dark... Oh, I don't doubt it. goes, what is that? Is that person... What is that? That person's walking on all fours. They're covered in hair. Oh, my God. Oh, it's a dog. Yeah. Um, I, I have had similar experiences. I can't, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but just fraction of a second things where... Yeah. Uh, Tangent. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. We've got more cash for questions. We have to get to them. I was just looking... Mike O'Sullivan, thanks, Mike, has just sent me a video titled Weagle... <laughs> I was going to say Weagle versus Seagull. Weasel versus Seagull. And it's not a weasel, it's a mink. But it's an epic marine battle between uh, a mink and a gull. And it's actually happening at sea. <laughs> it's quite incredible. Thank you, Mike. All right, we'll come back to that another time. Yeah, yeah sorry. Okay, cash for yeah. questions. So there you go. Hope you're happy with that, Alex. We don't think there is a... Uh, you still there? Yeah. Okay. I was sorry, waiting I broke for you. I was being still waiting for you. No. Oh, that's no. It, it yeah. looked like it. Sorry, you have to you have to edit that out. I have to go like this more. I just have to be always moving. Yeah, keep around. moving. Yeah. So you think? Yeah. Okay, that'll get exhausting. Oh dear, what a mess! Come on, cash for questions. Right. So, thank you, Alex, for that question. Um, Thank you, Alex. Hope you enjoyed the answer. Mm -hmm. And this one's from Jonathan Mitchell, who says, could you please discuss the aquatic sloth genre? Genre. Um, Thalassocnus. 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 And Ahytherium. Ahytherium. Okay, so uh, we now know that the um, sloths of the past did a lot of really interesting things. We know that there were, you know, modern sloths are small, suspensory folivores, but there were uh, le- le- they were leaf-eating things that hang upside down in trees. But we know, obviously, of like you know human si- human-sized sloths and elephant-sized sloths. I can't say sloth; it makes me sound. Oh, it just feels so dirty. Um, uh, and, and, and like a thing that was, you know, so it's, it's been suggested over the years that a couple of sloths, um, there's, 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 a bunch of, there's a bunch of sloths belonging to several groups, and in particular, megalonychids, which this is the group that includes the living uh, three-toed, no, t- two-toed sloths. That's Coloepus. There's this there's this clade of like short faced uh, sloths, and um, a bunch of them they got like really short deep heads, and their nostril and um, eye sockets, the nostril nostril openings and eye sockets are quite high up on the side of the head, and so people have sort of said, mm, is it possible that some of these were kind of like you know semi amphibious? Uh, so that idea has kind of like always been there for a, for a couple of sloth genera, but in nineteen 19- 95, Christian de Mizon and um, uh, a bunch of colleagues. Christian de Mizon is a well-known worker for the uh, work on marine mammals, particularly cetaceans, stuff in particular off the, like, the Miocene uh, rocks of um, Peru. Uh, de Mizon and colleagues described a marine sloth, Thalassocnus natans. So this is a sloth that's living 
at the edge of the uh, oh no, is it Chile or Peru? Oh dear, I can't remember. I think I think it occurs in both countries. I think it's originally described from the the Pisco Formation of Peru, and then it was fat. Then it was found in Chile later on as well. But um, so Thalassognus described nine i five. It's got a bunch of anatomical features which it, which indicate that it was uh, habitually swimming, uh, which was a big surprise. Wow, a, a sloth that's living at the edge, living on the the coast, seems to have been swimming. Since then, several other species of Thalassognus have been discovered. Antiquius littoralis, Carolo martini, and Yalsensis. And um, they uh, seem to. Uh, they, they, some of them are younger than others, geologically youngest, geologically younger than others. And the, the, the geologically most recent ones appear to be the most specialized for aquatic life. So there's adaptations of their tails, suggesting they had like a laterally compressed sort of a tail, like a paddle-like tail. They've got elongate metatarsals, which are of the sort that you associate with um, like paddling with the hind limbs. Uh, they've got like a, a stretched uh, the bones that support the snout, the premaxillary bones with kind of like a spatulate tip. So they seem to have had like quite a long rostrum with like a big flexible kind of lip thing going on. Um, and so it seems over time they're becoming increasingly more uh, aquatic and the most the most aquatic looking of them I think it's Thalassognus yalsensis I think or it might be Carlo Martin I can't remember now but the the one that looks to be the most specialised is also the most poorly known and the few bones that are known from it are superficially similar to the corresponding bones of seals of pinnipeds making mm. making you wonder what the whole of this slice looked like so so that's cool so there's this like lineage of seagoing sloths that become more and more aquatic uh, over time then there's a couple of other sloths that have also been suggested to be like uh amphibious or whatever where's the question gone oh ahytherium so ahytherium is named in 2008 from brazil and uh um in the te- so far as I remember, so it's a while, a while since I actually read the papers on this. I've, I've, I've written about sloths, obviously, for the, the, the big book. Um, my recollection is that in the actual descriptive paper, they don't say any. They don't, the authors don't say the single thing about the idea that this animal might be amphibious or aquatic. But if you look at the content online, you know, pictures on DeviantArt and stuff, there seems to be this whole community of people that are talking about this animal as amphibious on the basis of skull shape the fact that it's got these elevated eye sockets and uh, nostrils and stuff and i think it's found in like a wetland setting it's one of a, n- a number of recently named brazilian megalonychid sloths that are kind of biogeographically interesting as well as anatomically interesting but um yeah i, I don't have a problem with the idea that there, there's indication that some of these sloths were amphibious you know wallowing things eating water weed and stuff so um yeah so so there you go there you go that's could right. say a lot more about them there's a there's a lot of sloths out there uh-huh sloths <laughs> p.s take that niche Americans. niche rhymes with itch says jonathan well we'll just see about that yeah then why doesn't it have a t in it yeah 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 <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, okay, this is this is quite a big question. So let's get to this. And this is from. Ivan. Strangely, I've put Quan Ivan in there, but I'm pretty sure that's Ivan Quan. Yeah. And Ivan asks: um, Over the years at Tetsu, we've encountered quite a few paleocranks, and often 
insane claims. These include Eugene McCarthy, macroevolution.net guy, Dr. Pterosaur, who believes pterosaurs evolved into birds, Lawrence Clark Crossan, Pleistocene age... Ice Age Denialism, as illustrated by the comments, the Woolly Rhino Reconstruction Post, Brian J. Ford, and of course, David Peters. I know this is probably going to be extremely painful for all of us, <laughs> but if you had, to, had a chance to thoroughly discuss and debunk one of these crank hypotheses in the international media, with global coverage online, print, radio, and television, which, who, would you, who would you both pick and why? Sorry, I mangled that last bit. So we've each mm. got to pick someone. Ooh. Well, thank you, Ivan. That's a really interesting question. Well, do you have anything to say? Well, I would say that I wouldn't do it to start with because they don't. These people don't have anywhere near the reach that it would be worth giving them an extra platform. Yeah, um, it's not like we're dealing with people who have got, uh, you know, global media reach, and therefore, why give them more attention than they need? The oxygen of publicity. Yeah. Um, I sort of come to the conclusion that arguing with these people a lot after the initial sort of, you know, exchange, and it's become clear that they're not going to change their position. They've got something, there's something odd in their reasoning that's not allowing them to debate like a normal person, <laughs> like a reasonable person. Um, then I think ignoring them is the best thing to do. Um, so that's my answer. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, mm. I'd ignore all of them. Yeah. And some of these I'm much more familiar with than others. So for example, I didn't read the comments on the, I didn't read the whole Pleistocene Ice Age denialism thing. <laughs> and, uh, macroevolution.net I've never read. So I only know the pterosaur ones. Oh, Brian J. Ford of, a little bit, but yeah, okay. Yeah, now you know of macroevolution because we mentioned it several episodes ago where we were talking about cow-deer hybrids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which just turned out to be weird-looking cows. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, you mean a cow. <laughs> but, but Ivan's question does specifically say, if you had the chance. Well, no, I suppose he's, he's saying if you had the chance. So, well, yeah, because I, I would absolutely agree with you. Yes, I think that... that these people want their any anyone who's got kind of like a strange outsidey view that is contrary to what we might term mainstream or status quo or something they obviously they generally think they're right there's often a really weird kind of arrogance that goes with their thinking that they're right which this is there's so many there's so many facets so many different aspects of this kind of debate because because you know in my experience with cranks there's there's something wrong they're incredibly arrogant they're absolutely sure they're right and they throw it back at you not you you one the you one you yeah they throw it back at one by saying ah you mainstream Ar you're so blinkered and biased and you're not prepared to consider the alternatives and you need to wake up wake up you know all this kind of stuff wake up sheeple. it's like yeah sheeple you're just bourgeois idiots and it's like well well no because <laughs> no i refuse to wake up no that's not how it works it's like 
and and I have heard this, you know, sorry, David Peters for referring to him as a crank, but he does he, he does sure act like a crank in this d- debate. You know, I, I was posting screen grabs of a, a debate I was having with him well, after he accused me of <laughs> of slating one of his papers in review, which is quite funny because I wasn't I, I didn't review the paper. And in fact, I never have reviewed one of his papers ever, funnily enough. Um, but but he was saying, yeah, you wake up. And it's like, yeah, but the reason that I've got the views that I do is because when it comes to you know phylogeny evolutionary relationships and so on is uh you know because i can point to like a set of uh, uh evidence or a bunch of studies or something that that support the view that that and I, and i think that you know the people that are that are coming up with similar that are supporting an idea similar to the one that i would support have done detailed careful you know documented work there's often little problems or there's things where we're you know we need to go back over that and do that more properly we need more data on that blah 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 you know that that's provisional that's probably wrong but in general there are things where you can point to it and say that that well that's supported by the data that we have and yes it's possible there are completely alternative you know well there are alternative possibilities yes it's possible but it's it's possible no more than that it's like um we don't have evidence indicating that our current understanding is uh, is completely wrong. So, on the one hand, yes, I think that giving these people publicity and time is just a complete waste of your time, and you're and you're making their views more widely known, and their views shouldn't be widely known because they are erroneous, misleading. They have they have like a really weird biased agenda. In a few cases, they are genuinely horrible, spiteful unpleasant human beings um not any of the people that have been listed in this uh, in in Ivan's question as far as i know um on the other hand you know when you see things being promoted particularly online there is something of a you know okay this sawoti syndrome but there's also um a uh, you kind of think that i mean i think as a, as a as a high profile blogger don't you know that um you know the reason I did the David Peters thing is because I just think that not because I have any particular reason to hate on David Peters, but because I think that he is misleading, you know, a huge number of people that do research online, aren't experts and see his stuff and can't evaluate for themselves yeah. its reliability. Let me so Yeah, I would qualify this. So if you tell someone that knows virtually nothing about biology or paleontology or anything and you they read some Dave Peters stuff. In some ways, I think who cares, right? The 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 nuances of what is related to what uh, they're going to forget it in five minutes. They're not going to remember. It's all quite. Dave Peters is quite technical in a lot of ways. He's arguing about um, what I would call esoteric stuff. It's more people who are actually fairly interested in the subject, um, but maybe don't know very much about pterosaurs in particular or are more of a general interested amateur in paleontology. They're not, you know, they're mm. not professional. They don't know about pterosaurs, you know, this sort of thing. And you get him picked up by people who are writing, who I don't want to say should know better, but do have some knowledge. And therefore there is a specialist audience that you can address and say, no, wait, hang on. You know, Dave Peters stuff is really, really, um, to say controversial is wrong because he doesn't have supporters. It's 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 out there. It's it's a bit crazy. Don't mm-hmm. don't take this as a as a um as a mm. uh, resource um, for people who are interested. So there is sort of this uh, 
rebutting Dave Peters is worth it in if you know who you're talking to, right? Um, but it, to get back to Ivan's question, if you've got a really general audience, you don't know what knowledge they come to this thing with, they don't know anything about it, then there's there's nothing there's nothing to be gained in giving Dave Peters more exposure. But there might be rebutting Dave Peters if you know what your audience is, right? Yeah, which which all kind of more or less matches with the raison d'etre of the of the Tet Zoo, uh, David Peters' piece, I would say, and the same for the Brian Ford one. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, anyone who knows what they're talking about is that. Did I phrase that right? Anyone who knows what <laughs> smart people generally realise straight away that um, that the Brian Ford stuff. This is the all dinosaurs are aquatic all the time guy. Um, it's obvious there's huge problems with this. Anyone who is able to, you know, evaluate geological evidence or what animals, how animals behave or even how things, moving things move through water can sort of see obvious problems with it from the, from the start. But the fact that he's going around and, as I said, you know, giving lectures on cruise ships and talking to naturalist groups and, and all this stuff and just not stopping, you know, getting, getting a huge amount of publicity for this, I do kind of think there's, there's a case to be made for rebutting him. But for the sort of rebutting that I've done, so that's like an art, a semi-technical article that was published in the same publication as his initial claim mm. and a Tetrabod zoology post, well, you know, don't, don't really need to do any more than that because he seeks out attention in the media. He sends out press releases and journalists love his stuff. And I watched, I watched a lot of, um, not a lot, I watched one or two interviews that he did lately on spontaneous human combustion, which he's also got a major interest in. He actually claimed to journalists that he's discovered the magic answer to how spontaneous human combustion, why it occurs. And, you know, journalists are very interested in this and he's coming up with this sort of supposed scientific explanation, all based on, all stacked up on the assumption that spontaneous human combustion is real and actually really happened, which uh, I'm no expert, but I'm pretty sure it's a big pile of crap and it never really has happened. And, and all the cases concerned, you know, speaking not as a complete novice, but as someone who has read all this stuff in the, you know, books on the paranormal and anomalous events stuff, all the cases are like this person mysteriously burned to death. Or there was a fire on in the room or, you know, yeah. that, 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 all, that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Human combustion happens in this very odd way occasionally, but it's but not spontaneous. spontaneous. Yeah, it's not spontaneous. Uh, so, so he, so he seeks out the media, and when he does these things, and he, all this publicity he had related to um, the uh, aquatic dinosaurs, it was the journalists that reported on the story also did talk to qualified paleontologists, and the qualified paleontologists they supposedly were like, "What is it April the first? <laughs> all dinosaurs? Hey, well, I can I can believe that a couple of dinosaurs were aquatic, but all of them all the time. It's like, you know, as soon as." And I, I mean, I, ca- I can't help but be bothered when I go to a talk and I see someone give a, you know, a, tr- a, a talk that's full of like lies or half truths or, you know, erroneous nonsense. And then 40 or 50 or maybe 100 or maybe 200 people in the audience will come away with a new idea like mm. thinking, oh, did you now know this? Right. And that kind of makes me a little bit angry if I think it's erroneous nonsense. But on the big picture, it's like the numbers of people that we're talking about. 
Well, this is a tricky one, isn't it? Because the numbers of the numbers of people, as we've established before, when we were talking about views about feathered dinosaurs, the numbers of people that have got any idea of uh, the shape of reality is probably quite small, anyway. <laughs> What yeah. I'm getting at is the number of people that have got like a complete a crackpot erroneous view, thanks to the efforts of cranks and crackpots, is probably quite small. But, yes. um, but yeah. then the number of people that know and care anyway is is also quite small. <laughs> so, yes. Still, so global media coverage for any of this stuff is hmm, I don't even know what to make of that. Well, that's why I I. I went to a little bit of effort to try and find a word in my Tetrapodzoology article on Brian Ford to describe the attentions of the media as it relates to coverage of Ford's story. And insightful was the best one. Insightful, not as in having insight and being prescient and clever, but insightful, which means to incite. (laughs) Um, Yes, yes. Yes, to incite anger and distension. Uh, distension. Flame uh, bait in. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In trolling. Yeah. Terms. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And so, it seems to me, you know, the journalists that cover a story like Brian Ford's aquatic thing, maybe it was a light news day, but maybe they were doing it because they deliberately want. They know that it's going to anger. Uh, people that know something about dinosaurs, geological time, biology, blah, blah, blah. So maybe that's why they cover it. Well, I think so. I think they see sort of a fluff piece that might get some, like, buzz because people disagree with it, right? I think that's that's a fairly standard journalistic trick. You just, you know, take something you don't really care about, say something silly, like, say, get someone that says something silly about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> And we still haven't answered Ivan's question, <laughs> which is well, we kind of had because have because we, I think it's clear we both would think it would we think it would be a bad idea to thoroughly discuss and debunk one of these crank hypotheses. Well, of the ones that he has listed, so macroevolution.net, I've scarcely heard of that. I've had interactions with him on Twitter, and I've encountered it once or twice in connection with the. Let me get the acronym right. Um. FP hypothesis, which stands for, it's got the words monkey, pig, and a word that starts with F in it, <laughs> the MFP hypothesis, and a um, couple of other things. But other than that, he seems to have no, like, um, mainstream, you know, dalliance. Dr. Pterosaur, again, he's <laughs> infuriating to anybody who cares about pterosaurs, and a few of us, including myself, have I have had him show up in the comments on Tetsu, um, uh, talking about birds, uh, birds and pterosaurs. Um, yeah, he's really annoying, but he's kind of harmless. He's just like you know, who cares? He doesn't you know doesn't have much internet presence. Yes, he's Lawrence got a Clark lot person. on his blog, but no one reads it. As yeah, as I can make out. So th- this this ice age denialism thing that was kind of funny, but I think it's just limited to like you know discussion groups and comments on blogs. Already mentioned Ford and Peters. So none of those guys, I think, I suppose Peters out of all of them is the one who's got the most, well, I don't know, because Brian Ford and Peters have both got quite a lot of, uh, you know, they're quite media savvy. But but I don't, like I've already, like I've already said, I don't see any point in going further than we already have in terms of like going out there and getting publicity and <laughs> the global... Yeah coverage that Ivan is talking about 
So what so, I would so, really like, let's just like be fantasy here. If we could just choose someone to change their their opinion, I would like David Peters to switch sides <laughs> because David Peters is a clever guy. He's tremendously hardworking. I think he's got a good eye for detail. If he was working within the realms of reality rather than fantasy Photoshop things, he could be making good contributions to Terrasaur research. Well, I've said that. Yeah, I agree with that. So that's what I want. That would be my first choice of fantasy uh, things to happen. He would have to completely give up, completely give up all of that photo interpretation stuff. Yes, give that up. Which, of course, which is all he does. So, um, in terms of getting to change, sorry, change subjects a slightly. In terms of like giving online coverage and stuff and discussing something extensively, um, I was wondering about Francois de Sar, who's a French ichthyologist who uh, is the primary and perhaps only proponent of the initial bipedalism hypothesis, which some of you will know, read about this on Tezu. This is the idea that um, basically we've got everything about evolutionary history wrong and that vertebrates evolved initially as kind of like vertically hanging sea creatures with like a float at the top. (laughs) So good. And then the float... And then the float evolved into a brain, and then the, the hanging vertical pole became a little like human, and it's called the marine homunculus oh, stage. And then from that, directly from that, humans, yeah. right? And then humans came onto the land. Actually, they're they're called prehumans. So these bipedal erect prehumans came onto the land. And some of them carried on evolving in that direction, and that's where we come from. But others of the aquatic prehumans, they found walking upright quite annoying, so they took to walking on their knuckles, and they like became apes and monkeys and stuff. And then others like became even more quadrupedal, and they became the other kinds of mammals. Mm. And then others like evolved snappy jaws and more teeth and stuff, and they became like reptiles and stuff, and birds. And then some of them the reptile kind of quadrupedal ones, they didn't like living on the land so much and they went back to the water and they became fish. <laughs> so initial bipedalism. And it's it's quite a, an astonishing hypothesis. And, uh, and I don't like, and I really quite, I quite like the, the, the proponent, Francois de Sey. He's like, a, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great guy. And... Um, I kind of think it's. I'm not. I can't see any point in giving this idea loads of publicity, and I don't. I don't see any point in like doing an atomic smackdown. But um. But it could. Could it be used as a good illustration of showing how this is what one person says, but this is what we actually know. But this is how we actually should reconstruct evolution. Uh, I don't know. It's not something I'm planning to do. I'm only thinking of it in the context of Ivan's oh, hypothetical. It's such a great idea. <laughs> So, so backwards, so nice. Mm. I love it. Um, that's the other thing. I often really enjoy some of these like crazy ideas, right? It's, yes. We talk about them oh, all the yeah. time because we enjoy them. They're really good. I don't want people to stop coming up with them. I don't want people to stop talking about them. Mm. Um, it, the, it's more that we don't want a whole bunch of people that should know better starting to believe in them. Mm. Um, I think that's my essential 
um, notion. But in lots of cases, that just doesn't seem to be the case. People are relatively reasonable. It's not like these people have got a lot of supporters. Yeah, yeah. And I think the... There are at least there are at least a few unusual scenarios that probably do have something something going for them, but not whole hog. Kind of like ten yeah. percent of it. Like I'm thinking, for example, of anything to do with the evolution of flightlessness and flightability in birds and dinosaur-like birds and bird-like dinosaurs. Yeah. Um. So the whole so. The there's this George Olszewski this idea promoted by George Olszewski George Olszewski when I first got got interested in technical dinosaur research yeah this is I think this is the the influence of uh, you know the dinosaur mailing list the internet communities in the community that I was involved in you know I've I've never really considered myself part of like mainstream academic paleontological research whether that's a good or bad thing I don't know but but um so I've got involved in this community where yeah, George Olszewski is quite a big deal, and he's like one of the one of the main players in town. It's like no, he's not. It's like with all due respect, he's like an author who did a couple of fringe things that like you know most people that work on dinosaurs in a technical sense haven't even heard of, let alone use. So he had this idea which he came up with in the early nineties, the birds come first theory. This idea that that like ancestral dinosaurs were small quadrupedal tree climbing uh, animals and that from them multiple lineages of big bodied terrestrial forms evolved but the little ancestral tree climbing ones evolved gradually kind of straight line single lineage into modern birds and that all the dinosaur lineages are kind of like uh divergent spill-offs from this arboreal bird-like bird-like line and that that hypothesis is an extreme version of greg paul's uh idea of the late 1980s i used to call it the flightlessness premiere hypothesis <laughs> but I, I don't think it's really got a name nowadays just the idea that that um animals like archaeopteryx gave rise to big flightless things like the dromaeosaurs and even ostrich dinosaurs and uh, oviraptorosaurs and so on. Uh, and and, and Olszewski obviously took that to the next level, ex- extrapolating it to all dinosaurs and maybe even all archosaurs. But um, the Greg Paul thing, okay, you can't really support the position that he has, that he used to support for Archaeopteryx because it does seem to be, you know, obviously on the bird, closer to modern birds than are things like ostrich dinosaurs and probably things like Trodontes and Dromaeosaurs, probably. But, um... Yeah, I'm not sure he ever supported it being less... Oh, well, I should shut up because I was going to just find it but quickly, but I can't. Anyway, go ahead. I'm pretty sure he... No, that's exactly what he does have. He does have, like, Archaeopteryx... At the as, base, yeah. Yeah, as, as, as a potential kind of ancestor... I could, I could, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Well, I can go and grab my copy of Predatory Dinosaurs. I'm pretty of the world. sure he revised that. Uh, yeah. So in Predatory Dinosaurs of the World, he might have said that in his yeah. big book about it. I don't think he did. Dinosaurs of the yeah. Air. But the um, oh, that's so annoying. Dinosaurs of the Air is within easy reach. And Predatory Dinosaurs of the World is right the way over on this bookcase. Uh, I can't reach it. Uh. This is a part of the show called Darren Grabs Books Off Bookshelves. Yeah, I got I'm it, doing I got it. it. Oh, you've got it. I'm doing it. Oh, <sighs> it's just right here. God damn. Oh, you fool, Conway. Yeah, yeah this is you this are... is a great bit of the podcast, isn't it? 
Darren, Darren and John and get John. the same books out of the bookshelf and race. <laughs> Have you got a hardback or a softback one? I've got a hardback. No way. Like, oh, softback. Let me see the cover of yours. Uh, it doesn't got a cover. Oh, doesn't have the dust jacket. I wanted to know which yeah. version of the dust jacket you had. I got this copy from um, Jordan Mallon, who's a paleontologist oh, in yeah. Canada. It's one of the, it's the first person I met on the internet. And I said that I couldn't get a copy. And he said he had two and he'd send me one and he did. Oh, that's good of him. So. Okay, well, read it and weep, Conway, because look at this. <laughs> yeah, you got there first. I'm faster than you. It's page... 224 and 5. So on the cladogram, can you see... Can you see... Where's yeah. Archaeopteryx? Does that, I can't see. It's a mirror image from what we're looking at. Does that say Archaeopteryx? Or does that say, does that say yeah, Archaeopteryx, Archaeopteryx there? Archaeopteryx right there, yeah. So that is the first... That lineage is the sister group to this whole big clade. But, well... So there's this big clade he calls proto-birds, yeah. and he's got Archaeopteryx as diverging first. Then he's got, wow, forgotten how weird this tree is. Because yeah, he's got it's parapho- really weird, isn't it? Paraphyletic dromaeosaurs. So dromaeosaurus and velociraptor do not form a clade. They're outgroups to a clade that includes oviraptorosaurs, all of the ornithomimosaurs, and truodontids. Yeah. And birds. Yeah, mm. that's seriously weird. I didn't realise how weird that was. And um, for readers who don't know what the hell we're talking about, I mean, ostrich dinosaurs are categorically not part of the Manoraptor and radiation, the group that includes birds and really bird-like celerosaurs. Truodontids, dromaeosaurs and birds is, are universally agreed to be close to one another. And the exact nature of the relationship between those three lineages depends on which study you look at, which data set you look at. And oviraptorosaurs are generally regarded as outside of this third dromaeosaurid truodontid clade, but uh, some people think that might be wrong. I don't think it's wrong. I think I think they are outside that clade. Yeah, So, but if we look at the... Um, so he's revised his hypothesis, of course, um, and now accepts relatively standard um, phylogeny. Mm. Um I think the basis of the argument is that there's a bunch of modifications that happen in Manoraptor and dinosaurs, um, which can be explained by having had some flight ability or gliding ability or something. You know, so they did something odd with their forelimbs and reoriented the glenoid sideways rather than downwards, and that's evidence that at some part point in the past they were flighted or gliding or doing something like this. And I think that that argument is still fit. well. It's still possible. I I tend to agree with it. I think it's probably true. But and I think it's it's sort of being borne out by the fossil record, certainly for dromaeosaurs. Um. But I think it still remains to be seen for sure, especially for things like oviraptors, oviraptorosaurs, and some yes. of the other things like this. Well, that's that is the whole point that I was yes starting to talk about it is for the reason that you've just said that there probably is we've we've got evidence of some flightability in dromaeosaurs because we've got microraptors and kin uh, and there's things like Peter Penner and Anchiornis and Xiaotingia which you know where do they go are they on the dromaeosaur branch the truodontid branch the bird branch or are they 
on a, a lineage that's outside of the clay that includes all those branches. And all these things seem to have some kind of flightability. Plus, we've also got evidence for the idea that um, dromaeosaur or truodontid-like manoraptorans, uh, I'm talking about flightless animals, evolved within birds. And that's obviously this, this work on Bowel or Bondock, which is, uh, there's currently a paper on that in review, some of you know. Um, yeah. All of which indicates to me that you've either got a couple of different independent evolutions of some sort of flyability, or yeah, you've got, yeah, you've definitely got flight evolving a couple of, fl- of flight in the broader sense, you know, including fluttering and gliding and stuff. Um, and then you've got flightless taxa evolving from that. So, so. I forget the larger yeah, yeah. context so in which we go, Ivan. <laughs> a massive, nice tattoo t- uh, diversion there. Uh, yes. No, that was the point, was that, yes, there are crazy ideas out there, but I think we need to be... I was saying that I think it's good to have some crazy ideas floating around and we shouldn't not discuss them entirely. And you know, I don't want them to go away. It's... Um... <laughs> I've got a manuscript somewhere that I was writing about alternative hypotheses, and I never finished it. I wonder where it is. Just look in my files. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's also a lot of fun. Okay, let's wrap this up then, because we've been talking for a long time. Okay. Um, do you want to go first? Uh, no, you go first. That's traditional. It's funnier when you go first, isn't it? Oh, I can't find that file. No, don't right. find it now. Find It'd be it the later. best paper ever if I... Yeah. Right, hold on. Let's move Dinosaurs Past and Present, Volume 1 and 2. Uh, right. Um, so my name's Darren Nash, and uh, this is the Tetrapodsology Podcast. And if you want to listen to the Tetrapodsology Podcast, if you want to go to the website where the podcast is hosted, you go to tetzoo.com. Yeah, I don't know how you're listening now, but there you go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, check out the Tetsu Wiki at Tetsu. No, 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 no. It's Wiki. It's Wiki. Yeah. Thank you to Cameron and others. And uh, again, if you're interested in helping out, please do so and get rid of those million, million, million spam bots that now infest the place. Um, our good friends uh, John Turmel and Alberta Corp produce. The Tetsu Time Comic. Is that comic.tetsu.com? No, no, no. No. It's time.tetsu.com. So that's time.tetsu.com. And there's a couple of recent episodes which are really hilarious. Because that's now Rebecca Groom is involved and Gareth Monger is involved. And having mentioned Rebecca, look, I've got my own little paleo plushie velociraptor. Yes, I got Thank you, Rebecca. I tweeted about Ah. that. Yeah. Isn't it cool? Yeah, um, and then Ethan Kozak of the Black Mud Puppy. Uh, that's comic.tetzu.com, the Tetzu comic. I sell T-shirts, which you can get at the Tetzu Redbubble shop. And I released a new one the other day about sea monsters, sea monsters and cryptozoological literalism. Please go and buy it. Redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash Tetzu. Uh, what else is there? Oh, books. If you're interested in any of the stuff we talk about, then you might be interested to buy our books. All Yesterday's, which is about science and speculation in paleontology, and Cryptozoological in Volume 2, which is about one. cryptozoology. What? Volume Cryptozoological one. in Volume 1. Because <laughs> Volume 2 is still <laughs> sitting there waiting for the great big vertebrate textbook to be pre- um, 
completed. Finished. And my three other books. Yeah. And I tweet at... Oh, thank goodness we're coming out to the asteroid field. At Tetsu. Is that it? Okay, where do they find you on the internet? Oh, yeah. I currently blog at a website called Tetrapod Zoology, currently hosted at Scientific American. Yes. And on the Twitters? Yeah, I just did that. Did you? I am at... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank goodness. We're coming out of the asteroid field. At Tetsu. (laughs) Um, What about you? Well... I've changed. I've changed my Twitter handle to the shock and awe of everyone on Twitter. Got sick of not being able to say it properly. Got sick of not having to spell it out. So I am the John Conway on Twitter, at the John Conway. Um, I'm on Facebook too, also the John Conway. I forget how you get to that. Anyway, um, you can go to my website, johnconway.co, and find links to these things. Uh, I've... I've opened my Patreon page, finally, um, and you can go to <gasps> patreon.com slash John Conway. But only after <laughs> you go to patreon.com for <laughs> and make sure I get your money, not John. He doesn't need it as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> That can be a thing now where we see who gets to talk about Patreon first. <laughs> right. And so our plan for Patreon, which we don't not sure was set up but yet, but we are both planning to put in some Tetsu podcast rewards. So check out our Patreon pages and Patreon us for the Tetsu podcast rewards. Yes? Yes. Yes. Okay. I wasn't listening. I was opening my post. (laughs) Sounds good. We are talking about Tezucon. Yes. So it's going to happen soon. Well, no, no, it's not necessarily going to happen soon. This year. (laughs) It will happen this year, probably. Um, Because John's been a real slacker. has left it too late. So it's probably not going to be Well, for summer, we kind of agreed not to do it this summer this time. Did we? Yeah. You weren't listening. I think I would have remembered. No, I don't think so. Okay, so yeah, we're, we're probably going to look at a later later in the year. Um, there's big conference craziness in around September, so it won't be then. Probably later than that. November, maybe. Okay. Right, so yeah. Check out all those freaking URLs. <laughs> Give us your monies. Oh, cash request. Thanks for cash for questioners. And... Uh, yeah, keep oh coming. yeah, thank you, thank you to supporters and questioners, and to everybody who is so generous. We're there, sharing and Facebooking. All right, let's let's stop this thing down now. Okay, <laughs> bye. bye. <laughs>